Hi, Tobias Carlisle here. I've launched a new firm called Acquirers Funds. We implement the Acquirers Multiple in a highly liquid, tax-efficient and capital-efficient way. If you'd like to learn more, go to acquirersfunds.com. Hi, I'm Tobias Carlisle. This is the Acquirers Podcast. My special guest today is Dan Rasmussen of Verdad Advisors. Dan has a PE replication strategy that is quite similar to my own approach to deep value. So I'm very interested to talk to him. Uh, no lesser personage than Jim Grant of Grant's Interest Rate Observer described Dan as a human Ferrari. So we're going to talk <laughs> to him right after this. Tobias Carlisle is the founder and principal of Acquires Funds. For regulatory reasons, he will not discuss any of the Acquires Funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Acquires Funds or affiliates. For more information, visit AcquiresFunds.com. Hi, Dan. How are you? Great. Thanks for having me on, Toby. My absolute pleasure. So just so we can understand the strategy that you're approaching right now, can you give a little background to, uh, to how you came up with the strategy and how, how you're implementing it now? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the strategy uh, really borrows from private equity. So if you look at the broad history of private equity from 1980 to 2006, private equity was the best performing asset class by a wide margin. Uh, and I think 80% of private equity funds that were raised during that period outperformed the public market equivalent. So a, a tremendous track record of success. According to Cambridge Associates, from eight, 1980s until 2006, it was 6% net of fee outperformance of the public market for the private equity index. Uh, so what were the private equity firms doing during that period? Uh, I had a really unique chance to figure this out when I was at Bank Capital because we were trying to answer this exact question. you know, What had driven our historical success? What did we need to do to continue it? Uh, and when we started to look into it, we found that there were some fascinating uh, elements of what had made private equity work. That, and it's gonna resonate uh, very closely with your acquirers multiple, as you uh, indicated in the opening. But uh, what we found is that there were really three characteristics that uh, uh, predicted success in private equity. Well, there were two that defined it and, and one that predicted it. So private equity relative to public markets, uh, private equity firms are buying companies that are small, uh, generally 200 million of market cap versus you know 30 billion for the S&P 500 um, that are levered, typically about 65% net debt to enterprise value versus 10% for uh, the Russell 2000. Uh, and third, if you divide private equity by purchase multiple, uh, the cheapest 25% of deals, which are done at less than seven times EBITDA, accounted for 60% of the industry's profits. And the most expensive 50% of deals done over 10 times EBITDA accounted for only about 10% of the industry's profits. So in aggregate, the story of private equity was buying small, cheap stocks with debt. Uh, and if you think about why that worked, uh, you know, it's, it's small value on steroids. It's, it's small value times leverage. And uh, gee, if you buy something cheap uh, and it's small, so you've got a lot of upside and you lever it right, you know, it, uh, no surprise it works. Uh, and it looks like private equity was earning about 6% uh, outperformance of the uh, broader market, and they were taking about 6% per year out in fees. So the true outperformance of the growth strategy was about 12% per year. 
Um, and so what I set out to do is say, well, gee, I wonder if we could replicate what private equity had done in the 80s and 90s um, by buying these uh, companies that had the same quantitative characteristics in public markets. They were small, they were cheap, and they were levered. And probably the leverage is the biggest departure point between me and most other value investors. But we can talk. I'm sure we'll talk more about that. Well, it's it's. Uh... I think I'm I'm agnostic to the leverage in the company, provided that the operating income is there to support it. It's not excessively excessively leveraged. But I have found, uh, and, and you, you perhaps know better than I, whether there's a tipping point where uh, debt is good up to a point, and then beyond that point, it's sort of deleterious to your return. So, do you want to talk a little bit about the the sensitivities of debt? How you sort of assess whether something is a, a safe investment, and where you think that the the limit might be? Yeah, and, and I would say that uh, the world of safe investments is not the world I play in. <laughs> you know, I am I am on one end of the risk of, and, and volatility uh, uh, spectrum, and and happily so. Um, uh, so if, if you want safety, go buy bonds. Uh, you know, we're, 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 our goal is to outperform, and, and my view is that to outperform, you have to take risks. So setting that aside, um, leverage. Um, so leverage, more debt is bad. Uh, more debt is bad. Uh, if you measure debt as debt to assets, debt to EBITDA, debt to interest, you know, any, any absolute value metric, you're going to find that the more levered a company is, the higher the probability of bankruptcy. And bankruptcy is you know, it's like getting a zero on your math test in eighth grade, right? One zero will sink your entire, you know, semester grade. So you, you know, you don't want zeros, um, and and debt is what creates the possibility of a zero. Uh, and so what you find is that you know increasing leverage increases the risk of bankruptcy. Now, what you also find is that just like buying a home or any other asset, you know, if you buy something well and you you know let's say you buy it for a hundred dollars and you borrow you know 90 of those dollars and you sell it for 110 dollars wow you made a hundred percent profit on a 10 percent rise in value so leverage amplifies the uh returns um, and so what you find i think of leverage as a sort of a trade-off there's good leverage which is leverage as a percentage of your purchase price right so if you think you're making a good investment you'd ideally want it as levered as possible to magnify the gains when it works um, but on the other hand, uh, if you're wrong, um, you want uh, less leverage on an absolute basis. And so that's why the intersection of leverage and value is so important. Right? If you buy cheap things with debt, um, you tend to have the advantages of the magnification and you don't have too much bankruptcy risk. But on the other hand, if you buy expensive things with debt, uh, you know, God love you. It ain't going to turn out too well. I mean, you, you have a nice strategy in that the debt is, by virtue of the fact that it's raised by the company, the target that you put into the portfolio, it's non-recourse to you. So it's not like you're carrying debt at a portfolio level. It's carried at the holding level. So in that, in, in that, in that instance, it's, if you're going to do it, that's sort of the way to do it so that any, any individual stock that might fail doesn't sort of risk the entire portfolio. That's right. And I think, you know, uh, this is Robert Schiller, uh, you know, won the Nobel Prize for the finding that market prices are, you know, 20 times more vol volatile than fundamentals. So if you think about where you want leverage, uh, you, you don't want leverage on the really volatile price movement of a stock. You want leverage on the balance sheet of a company where it's dependent on that company's earnings. Um, and what you find is that when you have leverage there, um, it's asymmetric. So if if you say have a margin loan, you have symmetric exposure. If the markets go up 10 and you're you know you're levered 100%, you go up 20. If it goes down 10, you go down 20. Um, if you buy a portfolio of levered companies, 
that are equivalently levered, you tend to not quite go up, you know, if you're, if say 50% levered or, you know, 50% debt, 50% equity, you know, you don't go up quite a hundred percent when the market, uh, uh, you know, you don't go up two X when the market goes up, you, you go up a little less than that. But when the market goes down, you don't go up two X down, you go only a little bit worse um, because unless the a bankruptcy risk of the company has meaningfully changed, um, equity won't, the equity won't reprice to reflect the fact that the company's uh, leverage is 50%. Uh, and that's sort of the, one of the key insights to making this work. It's a fascinating strategy, and it's one that you you were, a, a, I don't want to say a junior, but an associate or an analyst at Bain Capital when they, when you were tasked with this, what are the drivers of our performance? And that I, I think that the levers might have been operational improvement, leverage, and possibly the, the purchase price. So can you just talk a little bit to that study? Sure. Yeah. So, so we did, we looked at a whole uh, variety of things. You know, the first thing we looked at was just, you know, every private equity deal we could look at. So I think we built a data set of 2,500 deals, 350 billion of invested capital in private equity. Uh, and we looked at what predicted success. Um, and there were a lot of people that thought industry was going to predict success. Um, but industry was sort of an irrelevant variable, as it turned out. Uh, it was all about purchase price. And, you know, even those other things, size and leverage, um, Every private equity deal is small and every private equity deal is levered. So if you're within private equity, they don't really predict anything um, because, you know, 200 million of market cap is the average P.E. deal. Right. That is an extreme micro cap in public equities. I think there have been only a dozen private equity deals that are larger than the large end of the small cap index. So, you know, by and large, what we're talking is tiny little things. So whether it's 400 million of market cap, 200 million, 100 million, it's all small. It doesn't really matter. Leverage levels, again, 65, 70, 55, you know, it doesn't really matter uh, much at all uh, because everything is, is, is levered. So controlling for everything else, you know, it doesn't make much of a difference. Um, what really mattered is the, the valuation. And, and that was so powerfully predictive. And, and especially, I think, in a levered environment for those reasons we were talking about. Um, and we looked at the other drivers, which I think, you, you know, you brought up. You know, I think that um, private equity firms would tell you that, um, there are really uh, maybe two or three core strengths that they have, right? One is that they do better diligence. So they spend a huge amount of work. They really know the companies. By the way, they have access to private information. So, you know, they have knowledge advantage over, say, public investors and a depth of, you know, they own 15 companies rather than 50. So, of course, they know them better. Um, and then second, uh, that uh, they're able to improve them, right? They, that's why they have control. They own 100% of the companies so that they can sit on the board and make them better. Um, and then... Uh, you know, uh, third, you know, and sort of related to that, um, they have the ability to install, you know, hire or fire the CEO. Um, uh, and so they can replace them with a better person from their staple of operators. Um, and those sort of key drivers allow private equity in their minds to outperform. Um, and what I found is that, you know, um, uh, and this is goes back to Philip Tetlock, a student of Daniel Kahneman's, right? More knowledge doesn't make you a better forecaster. So, you know, great you have access to a data room. Great you spent a million dollars on McKinsey. Uh, you're no more likely to predict EBITDA growth than anyone else. Um, and anybody who has ever looked at EBITDA forecasts from any buy side firm will tell you the error bars are so huge as to make even the whole endeavor of forecasting EBITDA growth are worthless. Um, and we broadly found that to be true. Um, in terms of operational improvements, you know, is every um, private equity guy trained at an investment bank magically a better CEO than every public company CEO? Are they magically better board members than every public company board? Is McKin the McKinsey people that 
you know, KKR hires that much better than the McKinsey people that the public company hires, right? It's just not plausible, right? And if private equity guys were really such better managers, shouldn't Harvard Business School and Stanford be teaching the private equity approach to management? But they don't. Well, why is that? Why is it that this is so vaunted yet they don't teach it? Well, because the private equity approach to management is lever the company up. That's it. It's that's it. And and then you know sit on the board and if things go wrong you know bring in McKinsey again and again or maybe switch to BCG because they have industry expertise. Uh, and that's about as far as it goes and it doesn't really help. Uh, and then third you know choosing the CEO you know who the CEO is in my mind you know doesn't really uh, matter. Um, and, and we can talk more about that. Well, but, you, but it, let's 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 dive into that. You've you've uh, more recently. Uh, released a paper describing looking at the, the characteristics of CEOs and whether that is in fact predictive of performance. So would you would you like to talk to that a little bit? Sure. You know, I think um, th- there's this, uh, you know, it goes back to the 80s uh, and uh, a guy, Michael Jensen at Harvard Business School. Uh, and Jensen had this idea that he noticed that Harvard Business School students uh, gasp, we're not going to corporate management, the horror. Uh, so why weren't they going to corporate management? And he asked them, they said, well, we don't get paid enough. And so he said, well, you know, it's such a disappointment because my students are so brilliant. And if they ran public companies, then, you know, gosh, America would be a better place because, you know, they could pass my wisdom on uh, uh, at their companies, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and so what we need to do is pay CEOs more in order to attract the best and brightest to corporate management. I mean, what could go wrong? Uh, and so his solution, and this is sort of a uh, uh, this is such a, a common uh, hackneyed phrase now, but he wanted to align incentives, right? And now, you know, everybody is so into alignment incentives that you find like the VP at the private equity firm is trying to give his nanny a bonus for higher performance or something. You know, it's like, you know, oh dear, right? They've really drunk the Kool-Aid on aligned incentives. Um, and aligned incentives in the equity world, right? And then it goes back to another idea, the Milton Friedman idea, right? That um, all that matters is shareholder, you know, stock price performance. And so why not incentivize CEOs to make the stock price go go, go up, right? That was Jensen's logic. It makes sense, right? Tie perfor- price, tie salary to performance. And they did that with options. Uh, and they did that with, you know, essentially massive stock grants to CEOs. And and what, what my research looked at is saying um, a few things, you know, one, um, is there any relationship um, between the best and the brightest, right, Jensen students being CEOs and, and share price performance? And what we found is no. Um, MBAs are not better CEOs than non-MBAs. Harvard MBAs are not better uh, CEOs than non-Harvard MBAs. Uh, in fact, if you look at any sort of pedigree related thing, like bank, whether they were a banker or a consultant, even whether they founded the company, there's no statistical relationship to the stock price performance. Uh, and in fact, there's no statistical relationship between incentive pay and performance either, right? I mean, it, and, and, and in fact, even if you look at historical performance, right? So just say, okay, well, there's gotta be some great CEOs, right? So let's look at um, CEOs, whether they're three, you know, three years predicts the next three years, right? Because certainly, you know, if you're a great CEO, your, your greatness should be persistent. Um, and we found no relationship there. And then we said, well, what about the CEOs that do a great job at one company or a really bad job at one company and get hired to be CEO at another company? No relationship there either, right? There, there, there is essentially no relationship between who the CEO is, anything about the CEO or how the CEO gets paid and what happens to the stock price. Uh, and so now I can't obviously we're, we're sort of arguing for a null hypothesis, right, that none of this matters and you can't prove a null. Um, you can only defend the null. Um, but there's shockingly no convincing evidence to suggest anything about who the CEO is from how they're paid, who they are, as any relationship to equity markets. And so Jensen's logic, well, it sounded good, was entirely wrong. 
Jensen uh, had a great little. Uh, he wrote a, a series of papers where he was suggesting that the uh, the impetus for buyouts and takeovers in the eighties was the free cash flow that these companies were generating, which seems like a pretty trite observation to most. Uh, investors, but you know, naturally groundbreaking in an academic sense, and then resisted, <laughs> you know, fiercely, even though you know the company throws a free cash flow, so therefore it can support debt. Uh, pretty clear observation. It reminds me of Buffett's comment that where the uh, the CEO with a reputation for brilliance tackles the company with a reputation for poor performance. It's generally the reputation of the company that persists. Yes, so yes. Um, you were you were Harvard undergrad, then Bain. Um, Stanford MBA, and, and you, while you're at Stanford, did you start formulating the idea for Verdad? And that was, and, and is that, I, I know that you're at Bridgewater somewhere in there. I'm not entirely sure where Bridgewater fits I in. Inter, I interned there in college, yeah. Uh, and a uh, very short period of time, but uh, very influential on in my thinking. But but yeah, I, so I, I came up with this idea while I was at Bain Capital. And I said, look, you know, I want to go do what Bain Capital and KKR and Blackstone did 20 years ago. Not what they're doing now. I don't like what they're doing now. I want to do what they used to do and just copy it because it worked. Um, and I think, you know, most uh, most people that create good things are just copying, uh, you know, better ideas from other smart people. You know, there, there are no new ideas, uh, uh, only implementing good ones from the past. Um, and uh, so I decided to go to Stanford because there's this guy, Charles Lee, who's a professor there, who's just absolutely brilliant. He's a, a, a hardcore quant, uh, teaches a class called Alphanomics, just all about, you know, quantitative investing. And I said, well, gee, you know, I have this very simple insight, which is buy cheap, small and lever. Uh, and though I'm not a quant, I, you know, I, I, I'm not like a, you know, some super algorithm, algorithm guy, right? Those are all quantitative things, right? Size is quantitative, value is, lever, is, is quantitative, and leverage is quantitative. And so what I want to do is figure out how those interact, how those work, um, and try to find sort of the principles of what works, and then also take all the other knowledge from quantitative investing and apply it on to those variables and see how we can improve. So that was really my, my idea in going to Stanford. And, and uh, and it was great, a great decision because Charles Lee is a, an amazing uh, guy, an amazing mentor. It's funny. I, I came to it in a, in a, possibly in a similar way to you did. I was, I was a junior attorney working on a lot of private equity deals that sort of happened in the early 2000s. And uh, it's an enormous amount of effort to take something private. There's a di- diligence process and there's a lot of paper that's debt and equity and lots of things to be considered. The company's taken private and then you've got this enormously liquid asset that you can't shift easily and you pay a premium when you take a private and at the same time i could look at companies that were listed on the stock market that you can buy for virtually no effort open your brokerage account up and buy them and then don't pay that premium and get you know at least equivalent returns and likely better returns for less effort so um i think that the the strategy is you know i'm sort of talking my own book a little bit but i I think the strategy is a really good one and it's likely to perform very well, but it's still a value strategy. And so it's, it's been a very tough time for value. Do you have any, uh, h- how do you feel about it relative to something like a, a, the, the value factor or EVE, but which is uh, probably a reasonably good proxy? Do you, are you, are you going to track that closely or do you think that you, you're, you're going to be able to, to outperform or how do, you, how do you think about it in those terms? Yeah, I, you know, I think there are two dimensions to it. I, I think one is we have leverage, right? So in theory, uh, you know, if we both own something for the same price, but I'm 50% levered, you know, I should do double, you know, uh, and, 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 you know, um, uh, I'd say broadly levered small value 
performs like small value on steroids. So there should be a magnification effect to investing in the levered portion. Um, so I think that that broadly theoretically makes sense. Now, it's going to be painful when things go down, um, but it's going to be really nice on the on the upside. Uh, uh, so so that's sort of the, the trade off. Um, and I think um, the other thing I think that's worth uh, thinking about with all value strategies is, um, you know, and, and all quant investing is in some sense a ranking, right? You're saying, well, I like cheap things. And so, well, the 10 cheapest things should be better than the next 10 cheapest things should be better than the next 10. Um, and what's sort of interesting um, is that if you look at then the distribution of thing, you know, of, of, of the markets, most of the cheap, really cheap things are also really small for, for sort of related and obvious reasons. But um, what this means is that if you want to be a very disciplined, uh, extreme value investor, right, if you say, well, I, I, gee, I really love EBIT to EV, um, and, and I do, right, it's a great signal, um, uh, 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 you know, and you want to own the 50 cheapest EBIT to EV companies, probably the average market cap on those is like 200 million. Um, and so, you know, the other sort of question you have as a factor investor, quantitative investor is, am I willing to run a fund that can invest in those things? Um, uh, am I willing to know, uh, tie my hand behind my back and know that I can't ever get bigger than say 200 million of capacity because then I, can, I couldn't buy the very things that define the value universe. So I would say when I think about um, uh, what I do and how it compares to uh, the broader universe of small value. I'd say there are really two differentiators. Like one is the focus on leverage, um, w w which hopefully should amplify things. And then the next is sort of a, a very conscious um, uh, commitment to um, staying very small uh, and focusing on the extremes of the value factor, which I think is also you know, really important to generating alpha. I think you 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 touched on it a little there, but you you also have a a, a very recent paper um, which is a fascinating read about uh, looking at the very cheapest and then seeing if you can determine which cherry pick out from that group or determine which of those are likely to outperform the others, which is sort of the holy grail. If you can really figure that out, then you've got something special. So, what what can you describe the paper and, and what were your findings? Yeah, so that would be the holy grail if it were possible, Toby. Um, so, uh, you know, we've gotten really into machine learning, and and I, I like machine learning um, because uh, it's sort of Bayesian, right? It it, it, it it's probabilistic, um, and um, it's sort of in my mind, then you know, after linear factor models, right? I think machine learning is sort of the next stage for for quants, and so you know, we thought, well, what's the first way? You know, if, if you're looking at quantitative research, right, you know that the linear factors are the most important, right? That they, they show up in regressions. Of course, they matter most. So what you want to do is start with those linear regressions and then layer on machine learning on top. So what we naturally said is, okay, well, let's start with the linear model. And, and we know what small value is. You know, uh, so does everybody else. You know, let's look at the extremes of small value, um, which are really what drives the alpha. And then let's look within that to try to pick out the things that don't work. So, so. Um, what we did is we took the uh, one third of worst outcomes. So where the uh, linear model said it's going to expected return of 30% and it actually had a return of negative 50. And we tagged those third of worst outcomes uh, going back 25 years in the US and Europe. Uh, and then we said to the machine learning algorithm, we gave it everything we could think of, like everything. And we said, go and tell us why the model's wrong. Like, wh why does small value produce such high error rates and such high dispersion, right? Why do some small value stocks do really well? Why are others value traps? And why do others go bankrupt, right? And our hope was that we could more finely tune our factor model, right? 
Um, and so we, we we came back and the and, and we were delighted. The machine learning said, "Hey, we can achieve you know something close to 50% accuracy at telling you what are the 30% worst outcomes." And so great, you know, look look at how wonderful you know we're so so brilliant. This model is great. Uh, and so we said, "Well, well, tell us what the um, biggest predictors of uh, you know your essentially." probability of being wrong. You know, what 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 are the biggest predictors? The number one was uh, the linear regressions expected return variable. So 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 basically the, the model was telling us, you know, the higher the risk, the higher the return. And in fact, the higher the realized return. So, you know, if you if you did just if you purely said I want to only buy the things that are most likely to be wrong, you had the highest returns relative to the stuff the lowest likely to being wrong. So there was almost like a beautiful proof of market efficiency. Um, now we did find that in some extremes, probably the five percent of most extreme probability being wrong, um, uh, the machine learning model was actually really good at identifying really bad things. So there, and, and in other, and, and it was also good at sort of identifying things which might be a little bit, a little bit less risky than their price implied. So it, it does improve a factor model. I mean, using machine learning does definitely improve the factor model, um, but for the most part, it's not. Uh, it's it's a very incremental improvement. Okay, it's not gonna. It's it's machine learning isn't magic. I mean, nothing in investing is magic. But you know, the linear regressions are pretty darn good, and they're and and markets are pretty darn efficient. But machine learning can help you fine tune those things. But by and large, even with the most advanced tools, you're gonna find that things like price uh, matter matter most. Uh, we we took a similar approach in quantitative value. We looked at that uh, cheapest decile of EBE, but and then tried to divide it into two halves because it's it's already a fairly small universe of stocks and so to get a, a size a sufficiently large portfolio you need you can't really divide it much more than in half and we we looked at a variety of things margin strength and so on so and that's one of the departures between Wes and I is that I just prefer cheaper and Wes prefers cheap and good um I think that uh just just changing gears slightly I I first read your work without sort of realizing who you were at the time was when you wrote a, a critique of Porter's Five Forces. Um, it's a wonderful paper. Can you can you just, uh, what is your critique of Porter's Five Forces? Well, to put it very simply, my critique is that there's no evidence that it's right. Um, you know, I think uh, you, you and I are in this, uh, this very controversial school of investing that, that you call evidence-based investing, which is the revolutionary idea that maybe your ideas should be supported by evidence. Uh, and unfortunately, Michael Porter's ideas just aren't. Now, they sound nice. They sound good, right? Uh, they're just wrong. Um, and what's sort of fascinating, so so what's sort of most interesting in some sense about Porter's ideas, so, so you have to kind of go into the DNA of his ideas. So, so Porter studied in the field of industrial organization. Um, and the field of industrial organization in the 60s and 70s was very focused on antitrust and monopolies. So they had this idea that, you know, monopolies were evil and bad because they could screw everyone over um, and thus earn really, really high profits. Um, and uh, the industrial organization field, there was this theory called structure conduct performance. So they, they, they said the industry structure determines the firm's conduct, which determines performance. So and, and, and let's make it even simpler than that. Basically, they said the closer you are to a monopoly the higher your margins will be. So the higher your market share, the higher your margins will be. So if you want to study business, what you should be studying is industry structure and figuring out which companies have monopolies. Uh, and there's something very intuitive about that, right? I mean, you sort of think, wow, gee, if I owned all the railroads, I could charge a big price for my trains. Um, uh, that hasn't worked well for Amtrak. But again, we'll get back into the evidence a little later. Um, uh, but uh, 
the the uh, and so Porter was sort of a disciple of this school, and he came to Harvard Business School in the eighties. And, and and Harvard, you know, business school has always, you know, the, the, the checkered reputation as an intellectual uh, field, right? I mean, uh, when when Harvard Business School first opened, people were were saying like, what are you going to do? You're going to bring in cobblers and butchers and and chefs and teach them. Biz- I mean, it's just, it just seems like not something Harvard should be doing. You know, teach them Latin. Uh, 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 but uh, but at the time in the eighty in, in the early eighties. Harvard Business School's approach to teaching corporate strategy was to teach people SWOT analysis, you know, strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, threats, right? And, and, and I mean, I think to anybody with half a brain, that sounds like a dumb idea, or, or at least, you know, I mean, in the realm of sort of, really, I go to Harvard Business School and you teach me SWOT analysis? Like, I, you know, there's something lacking. And and Porter came in and said, let's overhaul the strategy to, to the curriculum and teach structure conduct performance. Um, and you know, we'll teach them how to take structure conduct performance and apply that to corporate strategy. And that was the origin of the five forces. So I said, you know, the more market power a company has, the higher the market share, the closer it is to a monopoly, the more power, the more force it should be able to apply relative to its competitors, suppliers, et cetera, right? And that was the idea. And it should be no surprise that the idea of an advantage, powerful establishment dominating everyone else uh, so appealed to generations of Harvard Business School graduates. And this became the dogma of business. And sadly, uh, and I fault Warren Buffett a little bit here uh, because he adopted this this wide moat concept, uh, became a dogma among value investors who started to say, ah, well, we don't just want cheap companies. We want cheap companies that have uh, are competitively advantaged, right? That have these five forces, um, and you know, so caught on like wildfire. And yet, at the same time, is really interesting. This whole idea of structure conduct performance was also being applied in the legal system and in ac- academia, right? So, in the legal system, this was being used uh, to break up monopolies and break up companies with high market share. And the Supreme Court, in a series of landmark decisions in the early '80s. They basically looked at a bunch of sophisticated economic econometric analysis and found that there was no evidence that higher market share led to higher margins. No evidence whatsoever. There never had been. And so they said, you know what? You can't use market share as an indicator of anything anymore. It's it's not ipso facto anti-competitive to have high market share. There's just no evidence for that. Um, you actually have to prove consumer harm. Uh, and that was uh, what the Supreme Court said. So, you know, basically in the early 80s, Supreme Court had said structure kind of performance, as far as the courts are concerned, is dead. We don't believe it. We don't buy it. We're not going to apply it. So, you know, keep it out of the legal system. And at the same time, the field of industrial organization was starting to do all of these uh, price mar- uh, market share margin studies, industry margin studies. And what they ended up finding was that industry had no relationship to conduct or performance. And a market share had no relationship to conduct or performance, just the legal scholars were finding. And by the late 90s, the field of industrial organization had basically admitted that industry analysis was dead. Traditional industry analysis didn't matter. There was no evidence for it, and at the, you know, and this is like at the ascent. You know, Porter's star is rising and rising and rising. He's, you know, I think I think the Economist for Forbes named him a global guru, right? Which you, you pretty much know anyone who's a global guru is wrong. Uh, but 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 it had really sort of his star had peaked. Uh, and what I wrote a piece is just saying, you know, why are value investors still so devoted to this? You know, can't, which is what it is. It, it's can't. It, it doesn't work. Isn't true. And and isn't even basically supported by logic, which you know to what you were saying, right? Is it is it buy cheap and good? Well, you know the the, the, the you know no, it's just buy, buy cheap things, and you try to buy good things, and you just move away from buying cheap things, and and then it works less well. It's a little reminiscent of uh, another guru, Tom Peters, who had that book, In Search of Excellence, and uh, he said these are the criteria for excellence, and it included various things like a high return on invested capital, you know, high sales growth, and so on. 
and uh, uh, an analyst, Michelle Clayman, came along and said, well, let's go in search of unexcellence. And she found that uh, basically the, the, the companies that had the characteristics on the other end of the spectrum, which were very low returns on invested capital, little to no growth in earnings, they outperformed quite substantially the, uh, the, the excellent companies, so-called. And that study was updated by uh, a gentleman who worked for her. His name escapes me now, but I put it into deep value. Basically, over the full data set, it's a stunning outperformance for the unexcellent companies. And the, the reason is very simple. The excellent companies, you pay two times book for them on average in this data set. And the unexcellent companies, you get them for 0.6 times book. In both cases, there's this sort of diminution in the, you know, the, it, the, the companies get, the businesses get worse after you buy them in the 12 months after you buy them. But so the driver of the performance is purely that reversion in the, in the price to, you know, price to book or price to underlying intrinsic value. It's one of those fascinating things that I've been saying it for a long time, but I don't find, I can't find many value investors who are prepared to, who, who believe it at all. So I'm, I'm always very happy to find a fellow, fellow traveler. <laughs> no, it's, it's exactly right. And, and, you know, I always say investing is a game of meta analysis, not analysis. So it, it doesn't matter if you think a company is good, if everyone else thinks it's good, right? It's how you, what you think of relative to what the market thinks. Um, and so, you know, ultimately a company's price today depends on everyone else's projection about what's going to happen in the future. So, you know, uh, the, the sort of, if you want to be a meta analyst investor, um, what you just, you know, step one, find things that everyone agrees are bad. Um, and then among those figure out which ones you want to own. Um, and, 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 and understanding that consensus pessimism, right? If, if the future is completely unpredictable, um, then, both extremes of optimism and pessimism are going to be wrong. So what you want to own is the things people are pessimistic about, right? The unexcellent things. Um, and, and I think that's just uh, a, a logical. But I think part of it is you try, um, you know, pitching this to uh, sophisticated institutional investors, right? And they don't want to hear, you know, you're like, oh, what do you, what do, you do? It's like, I buy really bad companies that everybody else hates um, that might get a little better. I don't have any reason to think they're going to get better. I just sort of think that, you know, who the hell knows what's going to happen in 2020. And, you know, maybe newspapers won't be as bad as everybody thinks they're going to be. Um, and people are like, well, I have over here this guy who's a really done a deep dive on Salesforce. And boy, boy, is there, you know, bright future for Salesforce. And they own, you know, 20% of their funds in Salesforce. They have super high conviction. Uh, and I was joking with one of, one, one of these uh, uh, large institutional investors. I said, I said there, there is a, uh, and the, 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 um, you can either have high returns, right, or, or you can buy things that you have really high conviction on. Uh, but the universe of things that are high conviction, high return is a null set, right? You either take risk and get return or you buy things that everyone likes and you get mediocre returns. You, you know, there, there's just a, no, no more sort of obvious truth, I think, in investing than that. The Venn diagram doesn't really overlap very much in that. <laughs> it, exactly. We, we wish it did, uh, but uh, it doesn't. Uh, Buffett has sort of been a prop- the, the and as you as you pointed out the reason for this is that Buffett who is uh, the highest profile most successful value investor possibly we wouldn't even know the term uh, if Buffett hadn't been so uh, high profile and been so generous with his writing um, the 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 problem though is that if you try to do it yourself you find it uh, you know extremely difficult to do that and I think Michael Malbison has this great study where he took 
buckets of um, he he could rank say that the Russell one thousand he can rank them from the the highest uh, return on invested capital to the lowest return on invested capital, and then I think he puts them into quintile, so one fifth each, and he tracks them uh, over ten years to see what they do. And as you'd expect, they sort of have this mean reverting function where the ones that are the worst tend to get much better and the ones that are the very best tend to get worse. The reason's very simple, of course. It's because everybody wants those very high returns and they 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 compete for them and nobody wants to be in the industry that has very low returns and so they leave it and that sets them up to do better. Malbison's looked at the drivers of those hmm. returns and he's never been able to say uh He's never been able to say prospectively which of the companies, which of the what, what the drivers of it are. He can he can come with, up with conclusions at the very end where he says, um, you know, uh, biotechnology seemed to do very well. Pharma did very well. Um, you don't want to be in retail. You don't want to be in anything that's got these very high. You want, uh, you know, higher margins rather than lower margins. But nothing is sort of particularly predictive, um, which is just uh, I, I find it fascinating that this research is out there and it for whatever reason it just. I have these. I have these. Sadly, I have these arguments on Twitter all the time. There's a recent recent paper uh, on unpopularity. Did you see the? Yes, I loved that. I thought that was so good. Capturing that again, where Morningstar has those three categories, where they they say there's a wide moat uh, right, type is, of company. Same story as the Porter stuff. Wide moat, narrow moat, no moat, and uh, I, and I love the Morningstar definitions of these things. I think it's an excellent description of you know what you would look for in a moat. I don't think there's anything wrong with their method. I think it's a very good method. It's just that when you look at the returns to those three categories, uh, no moat outperforms narrow moat, narrow moat outperforms wide moat. And the, the, the reasoning is always, well, it's because narrow moat is riskier. Sorry, no moat is riskier, narrow moat is less risky, wide moat is the least risky. But then I always think, shouldn't on like, uh, if we... If we did a Monte Carlo simulation of this, shouldn't we get equivalent returns across all three because we're getting failures in in, in no mode and wide mode sort of persists? It doesn't seem to be the case. It's sort of uh, it, it's this it, it's this it's accepted so well in the literature, and then it it, it manifests in these discounted cash flow uh, models that everybody builds because they say this particular company that I'm looking at has this very high return on invested capital. So therefore, should be able to grow and compound. And it's going to grow over this sort of 10 years or so. And then the, the terminal value is going to be enormous because it's going to grow in perpetuity sort of at a slightly higher rate than GDP. So are you, are you, are you a proponent of DCFs? Do you use them in your, in your firm? Well, well, yeah, there's the old uh, joke that, uh, you know, an economist and a and a, uh, an engineer uh, are on a desert island and they're starving and there's no food and a, and a can washes up and, and the engineer says, the economist, well, what are we going to do? And they come, so I have an answer. And the engineer says, well, what is it? And he says, well, assume a can opener, you know, um, you know, in theory, uh, discounted cash flow is the right, uh, you know, predict, uh, you know, the entire future, discount it back based on its riskiness. And then, you know, that's the value of any uh, security. Um, and, uh, you, you know, but what I, eludes me is why, um, why investors think they can predict the future in the first place. I mean, I, I you know, if you said, well, you know, predict, you know, how much money is going to be in your bank account in 10 years, 
well, you, you know, you're the world's leading expert on you, you know, surely you should be able to develop a very sophisticated Excel model that should give you a pretty precise answer to that. But nobody does it because we, we all know it's impossible. But, you know, Coca-Cola is a much more complex system than you. You know, why do you think Coca-Cola's balance sheet should be predictable? Right. I mean, it's just uh, nonsensical, but it starts from the premise that, um, you know, if you can predict the future, yeah, it's right, but you can't predict the future. So it's wrong. Um, so it's like the first premise is flawed. Um, and yet again, I think and I think business schools are to blame for this. Right. The DCF models. Again, it's a Harvard Business School idea from the 1930s. Um, uh, y- you know, it, and, uh, you know, it, for some for some reason, you know, you know, people want to plan that, you know, they want to say, well, you know, what what should this be worth? Um, and I think the answer is, you know, no one has any idea. We don't know what the future is going to hold. So you might as well buy it cheap. I, I don't mind the Burr Williams model as a statement of what you are looking for. That is true that something is worth now the cash flows discounted from here until kingdom come. That's absolutely true. The difficulty is in implementing that theory in any practical way in any individual company. It's virtually impossible to do that. The other thing that I'm sh- and I'm sure that you have built these incredibly complex uh, Excel spreadsheets with multiple tabs all sort of linking through, projecting out margins and growth and so on and then discounting that back at whatever is the correct discount rate i have no idea but they, they all sort of boil down to these I, you, you only really have a handful of inputs they ha- it's the future it's the discount that you think over the next few it's the sorry it's the the dividend or the cash flow that you expect over the next few years the discount rate and the growth that's three very three very simple inputs that are then expanded out exponentially so I, I I get this is another thing I get trolled about all the time. I'm sort of I'm anti DCF, but only because there are only a handful of inputs, and they say, well, it's it's uh, it's silly to use a multiple. It's silly to use a ratio when you can look at these other. Well, the ratio. The only thing that the ratio is missing is the is the growth rate, and I don't know. Right. Well, I think that there's a there is a two by two. Right. There's um, importance and knowability. Right. And I think what investors miss is the knowability portion. Right. So so growth rate really important unknowable right? right if we knew the growth rate we'd know the value of the company well we don't know the growth rate it's unknowable so you multiply that in the equation and it comes out to zero right because knowability is zero um and so even though importance might be 100 if knowability is zero the value of that variable is zero multiple on the other hand is both very important and very knowable so you multiply those together and you get the answer right i mean that's that's the logic where people miss the knowability portion of it and and that's the, the i think the fundamental uh mistake people make right they they think that the future is predictable when it isn't. Um, and it, you know, I, I think there's no more um, uh, fatal intellectual flaw um, than to believe that you are a fortune teller or a prophet or a soothsayer, uh, when in reality, you're just a guy with a spreadsheet. So w- w- I've seen you describe your approach before as a Chicago School of Business approach. What, what do you mean by that? And, and what does that mean in a practical sense? Yeah, you know, I, I, I like this. I, I sort of, yeah, the joke, we call ourselves part of the Chicago School. I think the Chicago School, to me, means sort of the disciples of Eugene Fama um, and, and, and generally people that think, it, uh, you know, in, in terms of evidence, right? I mean, the Chicago School in economics was famous for saying, no, we, we need to prove this works in the real world. We, we need some empirical evidence, right? Um, and, and, you know, for example, on growth rates, right? There's a great, I think it's a 2004 paper. I think it's by uh, uh, Lakanashek, Schleifer, and Vishni. Uh, and uh, it's called contrarian investing. No, paper. it's a different. It's not, a different one. Maybe, maybe I got the authors. It's it's the persistence and predictability of growth, 
And uh, it might, I might have the authors wrong, but it's the persistence and predictability of growth. And they find that growth is neither persistent nor predictable, right? So if you actually look, you actually try to predict it, you can't, and nobody can, and they haven't been able to, right? And I think that for me, that's what the Chicago, when I say Chicago school, that's what I mean. It's, 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 it's saying, oh, okay, you're gonna build a DCF model. Well, before you build it, why don't you prove that you can forecast the growth rate? Prove that you can forecast the growth rate, then let's do the DCF model. Don't just build the DCF model assuming you can predict the growth rate. Uh, and I think that that for me is what the Chicago school is. And I think it's funny, right? Because People will say, well, why don't you do more analysis? You know, why don't you meet with management? You know, why, why don't you forecast uh, the growth rate? And I said, well, I'd do it if it worked. You know, you show me evidence <laughs> that it works and then I'll do it. Um, but I'm an evidence-based investor. And so I don't do things that I don't have any evidence or logic to think that they work. Um, and I think the most common conceit, right, is that there, there some people believe that um, the more you know about something, the better you can predict the future um, about that thing. And, and I don't think that's true uh, in any in any meaningful way. I don't think that just knowing more about something makes you better at forecasting it. There are a lot of people that really know a lot about baseball, but it doesn't mean that they can predict who the winner of the World Series is any, any more than anyone else can because it's unpredictable. James Montier has a great collection of these uh, studies that show all of the various, uh, various different uh, ways of predicting the future. He has a great one on uh, horse handicapping where mm. he gives people, you get a small amount of information about about which horse is likely to win, and then they, they rank the, the professional handicappers rank the horses, and they give them increasingly you know more and more data about these horses, and they sort of randomize it so no individual is getting the huh. same data at the same time. And it demonstrates two things. One is that we tend to anchor on the first bit of information that we see more than any other. And the other is that we get increasingly confident with each little bit of data that we receive about the horse that we're right, but our, our, uh, our accuracy doesn't improve at all beyond the sort of uh, the one, two, or three pieces of information that we receive at the start. It's kind of a, and then that is replicated over and over again through the through the literature. I think Paul Meal said uh, something like that: when you see this uh, phenomenon replicated that many times, it sort of becomes this golden rule. And that the golden rule is that simple statistical models do better than experts, which which. You and I sort of seem to embrace, but I, I, I've yet to see it really penetrate the investment world other than the quants who sort of seem to construct very large portfolios. So when you go about constructing a portfolio, how, how, uh, how many positions, how diversified, how concentrated, what, what, are, you, what are you looking to achieve? Yeah, so, so I, I tend to like the 40 to 50 stock uh, range. So I think that um, again, theory, right? Um, you have to embrace the idea that your models are good, but the world is unpredictable. So, you know, the R squared of even the best model is is not that big. And 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 again, you know, as we talked about in the extremes of cheapness, you have really high dispersion. So you you want to hit enough, uh, you know, you you want to take enough pit, see enough pitches that um, your statistical insight, uh, you know, works out. However, on the other hand, you know, you're balancing that with, of course, you have a ranking system, right? So is the stuff that you can buy at three times. Uh, then three and a half, then four, then five, then six, right? And the more things you own, you know, the 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 less um, of a hit you're getting from buying cheapness, uh, for example, or whatever it is you're ranking on. Uh, and so my view is that you 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 have this trade-off, right? Where, where you want enough names um, that you have at least you know some uh, diversification, uh, and uh, but not enough that your alpha starts to deteriorate because you're looking too much like the index or diluting your factor exposure. So. Um, you know, I think that's that, that's you know, it's a compromise between the two things. There's no no perfect answer, but I think um, you know, I think obviously factor investing. You know, in the in the big realm of things, 
should a 50 stock factor investor be better than a 500 stock factor investor be better than a 1500 stock value you know factor investor of course right of course if the factor is right the guy with 50 is going to beat 500 beat 1500 is 70 or 30 the right answer you know I, you know I, I don't know that i know or anyone really knows it sort of uh, becomes this slightly it's almost a nihilistic approach to investment just to say that the only things that i'm going to use are the things that i can you know, I prefer historical earnings to a forward projection and so on. So I want things that have been printed in black and white and I they've been recorded presumably because they actually happened. Um, but it's sort of the the approach becomes this uh, tetlock. Uh, you know, if you if you if you embrace tetlock, if you embrace the behavioral arguments about why everybody else is so bad at investing and then potentially you I mean and you're a, clearly a, a very intelligent guy. I got Harvard undergrad Stanford MBA. or maybe I'm just a really a really good actor and I've learned to read my script very well Toby and tricked you or you, or you could I mean you could be picking the who, who really knows you could be picking the stocks but it's a what what I mean what what do you take from the or what's the the Tetlock Tetlock has the uh fantastic book is Tetlock super forecasts I'm forgetting yes now. yep that's right Tet, yeah. Tetlock is super. that's right so what what's the what's the Tetlock story yeah. So, so, so look, I think at, at its heart, right, forecasting, that is what we do, right? That is what investors do. That is what investment models do. They forecast prices. Um, they say, these are the things where the price today is the lowest relative to the forecast price, right? Very, very simple. We are all forecasters, right? And so it seems logical to me that if you're a professional forecaster, which is what we all are, you should probably study forecasting. Well, there's only really one scholar. I mean, there's Meal and there's Tetlock, basically, right? I mean, there, there's this Kahneman school of thinking, but there's basically they all agree on a few sort of simple findings about forecasting. Uh, one is that when you forecast, you want to forecast like an insurance actuary, right? You don't say, you know, you, if you have two alternatives, right? How, how long is Toby going to live, right? You could say, well, I'm going to send in McKinsey. They're going to spend three months with him. <laughs> Uh, they're going to do a projection of his, how much he works out, what he eats. We're going to forecast into the future. You know, we're in a 50-slide PowerPoint deck. We're going to interview everyone he's ever known, and we're going to come up with the answer how long he's going to live. And the insurance guy just says, okay, he's a male. You know, he's this age. Does he smoke or not? How much does he drink? What's his family history of chronic illness? Plug it into a model and say, here's the answer, right? Uh, and Tetlock basically says that's that's the better way to do it, right? Because um, you want to uh, use probabilities, base rates, uh, historical statistics. So, you know, you, you want to orient yourself around, you know, what the historic incidence of something has been, right? So, you know, that's the best way to make, you know, decisions, right? You say, I'm going to renovate my house. How, how long is it going to take to renovate my house? You know, one way to do it is ask an architect, you know, think about what it is. How long is it going to take? Other ways to say, how long have similar renovations in this area of similar size taken, right? That's the base rate approach. And it tends to work much better because you're actually basing it on data. And this is why the statistical um, models work better than the experts, because the statistical models are just saying, take all the historical probabilities and, and, and assume that. Now, I think there's a role for uh, net expertise, but analysis, right? Because someone has to say, okay, well, what is the base rate, right? What, you know, what is, you know, what variables are important? How do we define that actuarial table? Um, you, you know, th th there's an element of nuance to that, right? And I think there's also some element of saying, um, you know, it, it, does this fit within the base rate or is there an exception? I think Tetlock would even say, hey, at the end of all that statistical work, you know, you might want to adjust based on some specific details, right? So like if your actuarial table says, you know, you're, you're going to live till you're 80, but we know that you're going uh, uh, to do a base jumping next week, you know, we might, we might adjust the model just a little bit, right? And that would be a sensible and logical 
Um, and, and I think that's what I take away from Tetlock, uh, you know, w which is you have to use base rates. If you're not doing base rates, if you're not using statistical models, you're not paying attention to, to, to what we know about forecasting and good forecasting. And if you're not paying attention to what we know about good forecasting, you know, why are you advertising yourself as a professional forecaster in the first place? I, you know, I, it beats me, you know. Well, it's an interesting, that's an interesting idea that you bring up there because there's a, there's a phenomenon that sort of I'd describe it as broken leg theory where you have some information about whether John goes to, and this is, a, I think this is from a Paul Meal paper. I think he gives this example where he says you have some, you have an estimate about whether John goes to the theater on a Friday night and you might include such things as it's a it's an action movie and he likes action movies. It's raining. Uh, he doesn't like to go out in the rain. And then you can find this sort of statistical guess as to whether he goes out. They say on this particular occasion, he's got a broken leg. Should you be allowed to update the model to reflect the or, or, or override the model rather to reflect the fact that he's got this broken leg? And the answer tends to be no. For the mm. reason that we find all of these broke, we find many more broken legs than there actually are. And it's particularly yeah. apt, I think, in a deep value world, because every single company that I look at has a broken leg, which is why it's cheap. <laughs> you know, that's why you get there in the first place. <laughs> so if I was to override the model, I wouldn't have anything in the portfolio, you know. <laughs> Because I can see that there is, I, I think the businesses are as junky and they're as cyclical no. and everything as everybody else. I just have to rely on that base rate bailing me out. Now, I love, you know, I talk to prospective investors a lot. It's part of my job. And, and the, the one question I dread the most is when they say, tell us about some of the companies in your portfolio. And I'm just like, oh, no, I know this isn't going, going you know, and I'm like, look, the more you know about the companies, the less you're going to like the strategy. <laughs> you know, like, just hold your nose, blindfold yourself and buy, you know, because, you know, do you really want to know that the largest holding is a Russian steel company? Or would you <laughs> rather not have known that, you know, like, you know, you know there's two reasons um, to hate it. It's Russian. That's why it's cheap. Yeah, that's why it's the cheapest darn thing in the world. Um, but 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 it's funny, you know. I think that's exactly why. And, and I think people make decisions so much more on stories and emotions than they make it based on data. Um, and that's what I think quantitative investors are fighting, right? Like, you, you know, um, because someone's going to make a decision to invest in a stock or invest in a fund based on an emotional or personal connection, uh, not necessarily based on, on on reason or that sort of what, you know, Kahneman calls the type two or, you know, uh, 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 type logic. Um, and I think that's often a challenge we face with being quant investors. And that's why I think work like what you're doing, you know, is so important because we need to tell the story of why statistics work, right? We need to talk about things like the acquirer's multiple and say, hey, you know, if you actually walk through the intellectual journey, you know, you'll, you'll start to come to an emotional connection with this way of thinking. And if you come to an emotional way of connecting with this way of thinking, um, then maybe you'll act based on reason. Um, but you, you have to do so much work to overcome people's bias because it's it would be so much easier to walk in and say, what I buy is great companies, the, the best companies in the world, and, and, you know, gee, it's not just important to, to buy the best companies, but you've got to know them the better than anyone else. So, you know, we put more work and more money into understanding these great companies and why they're great than anyone else. And that's, you know, and blah, 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 blah. And, and that's what so many people pitch. And by and large, you know, that's where the money flows to those types of people. And, I, and to me, it's just crazy because it's, it's just not likely to work. You have to find a good story to sort of explain the data that you're using, which is what I've tried to do in the books. Here's the story that you can remember, but the, the real message is the underlying data that tells you how it works. But I, I've seen many examples, and I'm sure you have too, where 
there, there's sort of there's no limit to the amount of research that a firm can do. Big firms that have multiple analysts and can send them out to. And I know that, for example, I, I won't mention the name of the firm, but a local firm in Los Angeles had a very big position in Sinoforest, a $100 million position, established sort of weeks before the fraud was uncovered. And they had done as much as send an analyst to China to go and have a look at the, the forest. And they'd been taken out and shown the, here, here is the forest that forms part of the portfolio. The only problem was that that particular forest wasn't actually in the portfolio. <laughs> it was just a forest. It was a nice forest, right? I don't know. I think back to my days in private equity, right? When you go on these factory tours, you'd see all these machines and you'd be in your suit, you know, oh, it's a nice machine over there, you know? <laughs> Great factory, really, you know, really great, you know, and like, what, what, you know, what do I know? I can't tell the difference between a good factory and a bad factory if my life depended on it. But yet somehow that was part of the diligence process. Um, uh, it's just so silly. But, uh, you, you know, and I think the, the other thing that people miss, right, is that, you know, the bigger you are, and thus the more you can spend on research, the fewer opportunities you have to invest because there are so many fewer big companies than there are small companies. And the bigger amount of capital you have to deploy, the less, the more constrained your opportunity set is. That's why, you know, an individual investor actually has an advantage over a 0.72 or a Bridgewater when it comes to choosing stocks, right? Now, now maybe there are other areas that they are, are really advantaged in, but if you're, if you're trying to pick stocks, the smaller you are, the more options you have to choose from. So, uh, you know, even if you have slightly worse analysis um, uh, than, uh, you know, some brilliant hedge fund, um, you are so advantaged by being able to invest in small stocks relative to only being able to choose from them, you know, stocks of $10 million of daily volume um, that, that, you know, uh, I think it's, it's an interesting sort of truth about markets that research budgets can't overcome deficits in size. Dan, uh, absolutely fascinating discussion. Uh, re- really enjoyed it. If, if folks want to get in touch with you, uh, how, how would they find you? So I'm on Twitter at VerdadCap is my Twitter handle. Uh, I have a website, www.verdadcap.com. We have a weekly uh, research newsletter, uh, which I promise is uh, uh, controversial, occasionally polemical, uh, but hopefully always empirical. I'm a subscriber. I think it's absolutely <laughs> wonderful. Uh, Dan Rasmussen, Verdad, thank you very much. My pleasure. Thanks, Toby.